0: Good morning. Good morning. So uh, announcement, we have a new app. When you go to your app store, it'll look the same, but it actually is an entirely new app. It's not, it's not one you can just update by doing app updates. You actually have to re-download. You can keep your old one on there if you want, because it's completely different. But once you delete the old one off your phone, it's gone. You can never get it again. And it's two different companies, two different apps, a lot of different features. The new one is really much sleeker, much easier to use. So I encourage you to go to your app store. It's free, and, and get the new app for, for Common Reason Ministries. All right, let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty of your character, for your methods of love. We thank you for the opportunity and the freedoms we have to come and study. We ask that your spirit will join us today, lighten our minds. When we draw closer to you, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We're doing lesson number seven in the quarterly, the book of Matthew, and the title this week is Lord of Jews and Gentiles. The title, Lord of Jews and Gentiles. When you hear the title, do you think, Why? Why do we have a title? Why are we actually talking about the Lord of Jews and Gentiles? Why, why don't we have the title Lord of Humanity? When Jesus was on earth, he, he, he referred to himself with a particular title. Which title did he use? I think probably the most common when he referred to himself. He didn't say son of Judah or son of Abraham or son of Isaac, did he? He referred to himself as the son of man over and over again. He's the son of humanity, which means the son of humanity, the son of humankind. In Revelation, when, when John had a vision, he saw one as the son of man. Remember the throne? Which means a human being. He referred to himself as a human being over again, not a son of Judah, not a son of Abraham or Isaac. Why does this division of Jew and Gentile exist? Where does it come from? The Jews. It comes from the Jews from the law. Well, from the Jews then it, would it come from the calling of Abraham? Perhaps the promise made to Abraham. If if that's the case, well, for what was Abraham called? What was his calling? How do you understand his calling? Was Abraham called to be the father of the uh, of of a, a of, exclu- of exclusivity? Only those who are genetic descendants of Abraham are going to be saved. Is that what he was called for? No. What was he called for? My understanding, he was called to be the avenue. His family would be the avenue through which Messiah would come. And his family were supposed to be preparing themselves to be assistants, if you will, to the Messiah when the Messiah arrives to help the Messiah to do his mission. That was, that was supposed to be the plan, Yes.
1: The father of many nations, and the nations are not Gentiles, but nations,
2: meaning all people.
0: The father of all the peoples. And the
2: thing is, when God refers to Ezekiel the prophet, he calls him son of man.
0: Nice. So, so when when you have this, what he's saying here, or we have any Bible support for this idea that that it's supposed to be uh, the father of many nations, or for all people, or in other words, it wasn't exclusively genetic descendants of of, of Abraham that included. Any?
2: Genesis twelve says, "I will bless you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you."
0: So, all peoples on earth, and then do we have functional evidence of that? How about Ruth and Rahab? Would they be evidence of that? Were they genetic descendants of Abraham? I don't think they were. And yet they both became part of the system and progenitors of Christ.
2: Not Rahab.
0: That's why I said Rahab, Ruth and Rahab, yeah. hmm And and what about Romans four, sixteen and seventeen? Paul says, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offsprings, not only those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. That's the NIV version. And I, I want, What do you hear in this? I'm going to take some some passages and tell me, what do you think these passages mean? First, those of the law, what, what what what's he referring to when he says he's not only the father of those of the law? What what does that mean?
2: It's probably similar to our name of the Seventh Day Adventists. It's they're just a group that's defined by a unique characteristic, right? Or like the law was belonged to the particularly
1: was assigned through the Jews,
2: but it doesn't mean that that's what their only focus was, or has to be reinterpreted. But it was. You know, you could call us, you know, um, by, well Eisenhower said, oh, you are the people of the peanut butter, you know, see, people, they were known of that.
0: So in this case, when he refers to those of the law, he's referring to, who? <laughs> the Jews. Those, and if you read other translations, they'll say, those um, from, uh, of the law of Moses or those who adhere to the law of Moses. Some of the other translations actually make it a little bit more clear. They're talking about the the law that that came through Moses, the Levitical law. Those who actually were actors in the little drama of the theater of the temple. That's what he's talking about. That's what that was. It was a little theater with a cool stage, neat costumes, nice props, and a neat script that some people refer to as the scripture.
2: When you think about the advantage for an ancient people to have a book of written laws that could be passed on, that were kept inviolate, the teachings kept inviolate through the generations, that's pretty rare in ancient times for people to have a a continuous, stable revelation.
0: So then that would be those people adhering to that particular...
2: That's what tells about, the people of the book...
0: So what what about the people of the faith? What is the people of the faith he refers to here in Romans? He's not only the father of the people of the law, but he's father of those of the faith.
2: Those who live and act out and receive.
0: So what does it mean to be of the faith? What would that mean? If you're of the faith, what does it mean? You
2: can't be born into
0: faith. Uh, You can't be born into it.
2: You have to personally choose faith.
0: Okay, another word for faith. Trust. trust. Oh, so these are those who trust God like Abraham trusted God. They have confidence in him, trust in him, belief in him, like Abraham did. Those are the ones, he's the father of those as well. Um, what does it mean when it says that God gives life to the dead? Who, what is this referring to? What's this about? He's the one who gives life to the dead in the passage there. Who are the dead that's being referred to here? Would it not be all the people on the earth who are heading toward death? And the Bible refers to us, we are dead in? <clears throat> sin. and sin. So yes, all of us, in other words, we might say, he has the cure for those who are in a terminal condition. We're terminal, we're dead in trespass and sin, and he has the cure that, that fixes that problem and gives us life. What about, he calls things that are not as though they were. He calls things that are not as though they were. He calls things that are not. As though they, in other words, he calls things that are false true? Is that what he's saying?
2: Things that have not yet occurred. He knows them and regards them as though they have occurred, even though
1: they haven't occurred yet.
0: Well, in this context, it's specifically about something, yes. I don't dispute that he does that too. Yes. He's creator. He's a creator.
1: The different version. Calls them the being that which does not exist.
0: Okay, how about in the context here? What's the context? Created in being. Okay, I, I like that idea. New hearts and right spirits, regenerating those that are dead in trespass and sin, and restores us, to, I like that. But in the context also, it's talking about that those that have that experience, like Abraham did, then become part of the family of Abraham, so to speak. So those who are not considered the family of Abraham, he, he actually makes them the family of Abraham. That what it's saying here, through this process, I think you're alluding to this is the same passage in Romans from the remedy, therefore, the restoration to a perfect state of being and the inheritance of eternal life on a renewed earth comes by trusting the one who made the promise to do it. This transformation is accomplished by god's graciousness and is guaranteed to all the children of Abraham, not only to his genetic descendants but to those but uh, not only those genetic descendants who were given the written diagnostic code, but also to his spiritual descendants who, just like him, trust God. Abraham is the father of all who trust God. As it is written, I have made you the father of many different ethnic groups. The, the God in whom Abraham trusted, the creator God, who is the source of all life and who calls things into existence from nothingness, considers all of us who trust him to be descendants of Abraham. The memory text today, it's out of Isaiah 42.6, it says, I, the Lord, have called you into righteousness. I will take hold of your right hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. What is this text referring, or to whom is this text referring? I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles. If you read the full context. You'll find this is speaking of Jesus, particularly the seed of Abraham, the singular fulfillment of the promise. Sunday's lesson is talking about feeding the five thousand, which counted only the men. The mass was actually the mass of people was actually larger than five thousand. So five thousand men plus the women and children. And just before the feeding of the five thousand, John the Baptist had been beheaded, and Jesus hears the news that John the Baptist had been beheaded, and he actually retreats to a desolate. Area Perhaps to, to contemplate the significance, but the crowds follow him there, and it's in this desolate area after this news uh, where there's no food around that, that he you know, feeds the 5,000. And with that in mind, the third paragraph says, There is, however, a much deeper meaning to this story, regardless of how it might be have increased the disciples' faith, Jesus' actions of feeding the, uh, the Jewish people reminded everyone of the manna that God had provided to the Israelites in the wilderness. The tradition arose within Judaism that the Messiah would come on a Passover and that along with his coming, manna would begin to fall again. So when Jesus uh, fed the 5,000 just before Passover, it should not surprise anyone that the crowd might begin to speculate whether he was the Messiah and whether he was about to do an even greater miracle, feed everyone all the time by restoring the manna. What do you think of this idea that he was fulfilling as a kind of a, almost a mythical belief that the Messiah was going to come and cause the physical manna to fall again? And this feeding of the 5,000 led their minds to that. I don't think Christ went out to turn an agenda.
1: I think in the sense that he had a script that he was doing. I gotcha. He did God's acts, did God's works, Because he was in tune with God. And God gave him daily things to do. Okay, gotcha. That worked into his plan, but he was not reading a script. Right, gotcha. Only on on the cross do we see him do anything close to a script.
0: Did Jesus, though, in his own ministry somewhere along the way, develop this idea or tap into this idea of manna from heaven? (laughs) Yeah, she's referring to it, yes. Um, John chapter 6, 47 through 51. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. How did the Jews, when he made these comments interpret the meaning of what he was saying The Jewish leadership at that time. how did they, did they interpret it in a certain way?
2: They pretended that they understood it only literally.
0: Right. They took it very concretely, didn't they? they, they, were, 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 they were they receptive in a positive way? Or were they offended by this? Because they took it as, he's talking about cannibalism in some way. And, and it really, well, the, this is outside the Levitical law, you eat e, e, human flesh, uh, uh, what are you talking about? You must be a crazy man.
1: But there were, at the time, there were religions in which they did drink the blood of the leaders and stuff, and so this is somewhat pre- an idea that was, in Greek, pagan belief.
0: And, and Christ goes on to further say, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Remember, he goes on to say this. So, how is his flesh real food and how is his blood real drink? How do we today partake of his flesh and his blood? In the communion service, I, I heard somebody say, in the communion service? The
2: words that I speak unto you, they are the <coughs> spirit and they are life.
0: Good. But the symbols of the flesh and, and the blood did get translated into new symbols, didn't they? And the new symbols for the church are flesh is the, is the symbol for the bread. And the blood is the symbol in the wine. So we, we have new symbols, new... But is that the reality? When you take communion and take the physical bread and the physical wine, are you taking the flesh and blood? No, there's are still symbols. They're still symbols. So she's saying the reality is the Word. So do you feel confident from your own study of Scripture to agree with what was said that Jesus is the Word made flesh? Is not the Scripture. The Word made flesh. Flesh, that we ingest the flesh or the blood, excuse me, the flesh or the bread when we study God's Word. And the truth that Jesus brought becomes to us the meat, the substance, the building blocks of our thoughts, our ideas, our beliefs, which help form our attitudes and help shape our characters. Christ, the truth of God, is the source of all truth and thus feasting on Christ is partaking the truth, which dispels lies and falsehoods and distortions and misunderstandings and confusions. The truth changes our thinking, our ideas, our conception of reality and thus the truth that Christ revealed and brings is the data, the actual particles of information that our concepts, our ideas, our beliefs are built out of. So just like nutrients for the body, the truth from Jesus is real food for the mind. What do you think about that? No? Yes?
2: Yes. There's a beautiful idea here because the the worlds were created by the word of God. Christ is the word. And 1 Peter says we're born again by the word of God. So we're a receiver of the divine nature through the Word, which is all kinds of things. It's God's creative force, it's the words of the Scripture, and it's Jesus Christ himself.
0: Yeah. Okay, so let's parse a little bit what you suggested. So by his Word, things were created that didn't exist, no doubt. He speaks and it happens. Are you suggesting then that the Word means that God speaks it because this is very common t- thought in certain forms of Christianity. The chosen, the elect, God speaks and uses his divine power and makes it so. And some are transformed, some are saved, some are predestined to salvation. Others, he does not speak. Or he speaks for them, hardening of heart. And he speaks for them, damnation. And he makes it so. So his word makes it. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah. When when you mix those two, that he makes things happen with his word in the idea of partaking of the word, is it God? Is it God speaking it?
2: So we have to distinguish in Christianity between magic and miracles.
0: Well, I I, I I don't disagree that God, the Creator, speaks and things come into existence. As we're going to get into the lesson in a little bit. In fact, I'll plant this thought in your mind. What can it come to it? What is it God cannot create? It comes up in a few minutes. Because it goes to this, it goes to this idea of partaking of the word. What, what he cannot create. You just think about that. We're going to come to it in a second. So this is, uh, I, I read this, this week, Heavenly Places, page 54. The word of God contains our, this is an interesting phrase, our life insurance policy. The Word of God contains our life insurance policy. To eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God means to study the Word and to carry that Word into the life in obedience and all its precepts. Those who thus partake of the Son of God become partakers of the divine nature, one with Christ. They breathe a holy atmosphere in which only the soul can truly live. They carry in their lives an assurance of the holy principles received from the Word. Their lives are worked by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they have an earnest of the immortality that will be theirs through the, de- through the death and resurrection of Christ. Should the earthly body decay, the principles of their faith sustain them, for they are partakers of the divine nature. Because Christ was raised from the dead, they grasp the pledge of their resurrection, and eternal life is their reward. What is it to partake here in this particular? To partake and, and ingest the word, excuse me, to partake of the flesh means to Internalize into your mind, into your understanding, into your reality, the truth that Jesus brings. Yes?
2: I like to call that regeneration.
0: So, as I understand it, the bread and flesh symbolize the truth. Revealed by Jesus in every place that Jesus reveals truth. In the written word, in the history of his life as it was carried out, in his actions and deeds, the truth of God's divine nature is revealed in, in nature that he has created. So everywhere truth is revealed by Christ and you assimilate and understand that truth, you're partaking the word. And the truth, as you partake the truth, dispels the lies and that wins you to trust. We're, we're amazed and we're one to trust by the truth that Jesus revealed. And when you're one to trust, you open the heart and that's when you, you permit, because the Holy Spirit, does he force his way into your heart or he stands at the door and knocks? And he when to open the door, I come in and sup with him. And what's he knock with? He knocks with the truth or the word. And so as we open the door, because we've assimilated the truth, then the Spirit comes in and takes the life of Christ and reproduces it in us. That's partaking of the blood. The life is in the blood. And the Spirit is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become partakers of the divine nature. He pours his love into our hearts, it says in Romans 5.5. 5. And so, the truth that we internalize leads us to trust, and in trust we open the heart, and the Spirit renews us with the life of Christ, partaking of the blood. These are the symbols, is what I think the reality means. So after Jesus feeds the crowd, what did the crowd begin to do? That something happened. Something, a foot, something on a foot started to stir in the crowd. Season. An idea started to foment. Season
1: for kingdom.
0: Yes, Hey, he's got power. Let's put him on the throne. Let's put him on the throne. And the, the apostles, when this idea started to foam in, in the crowd, what were the apostles' response? Good idea, bad idea? What? Good idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Let's, let's put him on the throne. What did Jesus do? How would Jesus respond to this, this energy starting to build?
1: <laughs>
0: he instructed the apostles to get in a boat and sail across the other side. Got <laughs> and you think that was an easy decision for the apostles to follow? No. Nope. Oh no, they didn't want to do it. Ah, but but look look. Ah. Boat. and then he di- and he disperses the crowd. He stays by himself, disperses the crowd. And then after the apostles are halfway across the the sea, Jesus goes to meet them. How does he go to meet them? Yeah, that's cool. That's a this is a cool story. No, this is a cool story. He walks on water. So, but before we get to the water's part, why did he disperse the crowd at this point? There's a reason. And this we're going to come back to what I was mentioning a moment ago, what God can get and can't get. See, why are they starting to stir to put him on the throne? What was their motivation for doing this? What had they just seen? They saw the miracle. They saw power. Power. He's got power. Let's put him on the throne. What cannot God not get with power? Love. Love. Can God get love by power? Can he get loyalty? Can he get trust? Can he get committed devotion? Can he get mature character from people by exercising might and power? He can't get it. See, God can create, understand what he can create. He can create sinless beings in different states. He can create sinless beings without the capacity for freedom to think. We might call them robots. Might call them animals. Sinless beings without the capacity to think and reason and make free choices. He can do that. He can also make sinless beings with the capacity for free thinking and free choices. Angels, human beings, Adam and Eve. They're sinless. But now, in their hearts of these free sentient beings, can he, by the use of power, create loyalty, devotion, love, No, that has to be chosen by the sentient being. Adam in Eden was capable of forming that type of character in his own strength. In his original creation, he was capable of weighing the lies of the devil, seeing the evidences of God, choosing devotion, choosing loyalty, saying no to the lies and forming a perfectly righteous character. He was capable. Since the fall no human being is capable of doing that. We're incapable of that. So Christ came to do for us what we could not do. Christ, God could also make robots, and robots are perfectly reliable. They're reliable to do exactly what you program them to do every time, without flaw, and he could make them with, that never break down. But do you get love and devotion and loyalty from robots? No. So why did he do this? Because they were starting to mount a surge based on power. This is not what God wants. So he dispels the crowd because he wants people to follow him based on truth, spoken in love, leaving beings free. And thus, on the road to Emmaus, you see the same thing. After his resurrection, the two disciples are discouraged. How did Christ approach them on the road to Emmaus? What method did he use? declaratives, big shining display of wonder, light bright show in the sky, it's I believe because I say so, through the evidences of all the fulfillment of prophecy. He maintained. this is out of um, 5 B.C., 1125, it says he maintained his disguise till he had interpreted the scriptures and had led them to an intelligent faith in his life, his character, his mission to earth, and his death and resurrection. He wished the truth to take firm root in their minds, not because it was supported by his personal testimony, but, be, uh, but because the typical law and the prophets of the Old Testament agreeing with the facts of his life and death presented unquestionable evidence of that truth. This is much more persuasive. This is solid. When you are convinced on how reality works, You see, that's something solid. If you're believing because, well, you know, pastor so-and-so said so, it must be true. The apostle said so. Jesus himself, the Pope said it. Somebody said it. I believe it. That is not nearly as solid in your foundation of function as when you understand that's how reality actually works. That's why it's true. And this is out of Desire of Ages 466. In the work of redemption, there is no compulsion No external force is employed. Under the influence of the Spirit of God, man is left free to choose whom he will serve. In the change that takes place when the soul surrenders to Christ, there is the highest sense of freedom. The expulsion of sin is the act of the soul itself. True, we have no power to free ourselves from Satan's control, but when we desire to be set free from sin and in our great need cry out for a power out of and above ourselves, the power of the of the soul, the powers of the soul are imbued with the divine energy of the Holy Spirit and they obey the dictates of the will in fulfilling the will of God. Man, that's huge. Power might Wonder displays stars and, and sparklies in the sky. Miracles can never achieve this. Only truth presented in love in which you're free to make the choice for yourself. This is what God is trying to do. Reshape the inner person, which means we must assimilate the truth and choose it in our heart. I love that. I want that to be part of my life. Yes? Yeah,
1: that tells you what Christ is like. And When they, when Christ ascended, the, the two angels said, This same Jesus will return. So when he returns, we have a a different picture of him being a different being. Then we need to go back to this same Jesus with the same characteristics, the same
0: way. It, it, well said, Wendell. It's quite profound. If you actually look at what the Islamic State, ISIS, is looking for, they believe they're on a prophetic mission. This is why you, you will never have diplomatic settlement with the ISIS. Because they believe their mission on earth today is to create a world war, Battle of Armageddon, which will bring back their, their Messiah, who they believe comes with a rod of iron to destroy and kill all the enemies of Islam. That's what they're trying to incite in the world today. They're trying to incite that war that will bring the Messiah to reward the faithful and punish all the infidels. How is that God different than the God that most Christians are worshiping who believe that when Christ comes, he returns with a rod of iron to punish the nations for their wickedness? It is the exact same description. And this is when Satan comes, he's coming impersonating Christ, and he's going to come with an incredible power display, and he's going to use coercive pressure. But he'll say melodious words, he'll apparently perform miracles, and he'll say things like this, look, I don't want to destroy you, I love you, I died for you, I only want you to worship me, but if you won't worship me, justice requires that I must punish sin. And I don't want to punish you. So before I I give you the ultimate punishment, we'll try to persuade you, we'll put you in prison, we'll take away your freedom to buy and sell. But if you still won't, then I'll have to execute you. And most of the world will say, this is our God. We have waited for him. And the, and, the, and the impersonation and the counterfeit will be so close, it will only be able to discern it through understanding the word of God, which is understanding the true character of God, his nature, his methods. You can't achieve love, loyalty, trust with those methods. If God were to use those methods, he would have done it in heaven when Lucifer rebelled and said, get in line or else I'm going to have to kill you. He can't achieve what he wants with those methods. Not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works. Great point. Monday's lesson focuses on the events after he dismisses the crowd. The disciples on the water. Jesus walks out to meet them. Peter, hey, do you can I come? Boom! Out the sinks. Save me! In the boat comes a storm. Amazed. You know the story. But there's a lot of lessons to learn in this story. First, when the, f- the disciples first saw Jesus approaching on the water, what was their response? They were afraid now think that through. was Jesus doing something threatening? Was Jesus actually a danger to them? There was no objective threat he wasn 't acting threatening he wasn 't a danger to them. Then why were they afraid? why their perception uh-huh. was Jesus doing something outside their scope of understanding yes. was Jesus doing something unexpected? Yes was Jesus presenting himself in a way they did not anticipate and couldn't conceive of, and thus they failed to recognize him. Does this ever happen to us today? Do we ever fail to recognize God or God's movements? Because God is moving in a way that is outside our expectation, outside our comfort zone, outside our understanding, and thus we become afraid of what we're seeing even though it's the movements of God. Does it ever happen today? Yes?
1: The other scenario could be that they had a scenario in their mind of what was going to happen. It was false, but it was but in their mind it was reality. When they saw what was truly happening, they thought this was filling their reality. So they, if they thought he was a ghost, that they were all about ready to die, this was a foretelling of their death. It was a sign of their death.
0: So that still fits with what I'm saying. They misunderstood. They misperceived. It was outside their frame of of reference. They had a false frame of reference for what they were seeing reality through. Well, yep, exactly. So could that happen to us today? We have a false... We see God's movements. We think it's meaning one thing. It's meaning something else. It makes us uncomfortable. We become afraid. We misinterpret. Could it happen today? What about those who are afraid of new theological ideas? a perspective of God they've not heard before perhaps a God who doesn't use power to threaten and kill now isn't it interesting if you've watched this i find i found this to be true see if any of you've noticed the same thing and that is those who hold the view that God does use power to torture and kill and punish the wicked in the end they become afraid when you suggest the idea that he doesn't have you noticed that it's quite interesting Wait a second, God isn't going to use his power to torture and kill and punish the wicked. And they get real uncomfortable and real, real anxious and real upset about that. Wait, wait, but you, you believe that he is someone that's going to torture and kill when we're taking that piece away and he's a God who, who is more trustworthy, more loved, more, more gentle, more approachable. Yeah, that, and that makes us uncomfortable.
1: <laughs>
0: Have you noticed that? It's true. Try it on people. Watch their reaction. They'll get real uncomfortable with this. Why is that the case? Why are they afraid? Because they have such.
2: I believe God is really that way. And if they deviate from that, then they believe that they
1: are going to be the victim.
0: That's right. If I, you know, if I believe that, then the God I believe in is going to punish me. See, it's scary for it's Interesting, isn't it?
1: They did the same thing uh, in the, when the Jews were asking for a king. They wanted uh, Solomon, and God didn't want to give him a king. But yet they were looking for some type of earthly person that they could put their trust in their leadership in. Okay.
0: So as I was uh, studying this week, this is a quote that we've heard before, but I thought it had some application to this idea here, uh, the idea about difficulty uh, uh, assimilating new ideas. And and it's uh, quite profound. I'm going to ask you some questions as we go through. There's no excuse for anyone, this is, by the way, from uh, uh, the *Review and Herald, December 20, 1892. There is no excuse for anyone taking a position that there is no more truth to be revealed or that all our expositions of scripture are without an error this is someone writing uh, about this particular denomination's positions okay the fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not proof that our ideas are infallible age will not make error into truth and truth can afford to be fair No true doctrine will lose anything by close investigation. This is a profound principle. i got to tell you, once I came over to the design law construct, how reality actually worked and left the imposed, it's okay. Okay, you got a different view? Let's look at the evidence of it. I'm not afraid to look at that evidence because the evidence is not going to lead me away from how reality works. It's a great position. There are those who oppose everything that is not in accordance with their own ideas. And by so doing, they endanger their eternal interest as verily as did the Jewish nation in their rejection of Christ. The Lord designs that our opinions shall be put to the test. Designs that our opinions... Why is it designed that way? Why is it designed, though? What's Hebrews 5.14 say? The mature are those who've developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. Why is it designed that way? This is one of God's design laws. It's called the law of exertion. If you want something to get strong, you must exercise it. Do you want to get stronger muscles? You must exercise it. You want to get stronger musical skill? You must practice your instrument. You want to get stronger mathematical abilities? You must work problems. If you want to get stronger ability to discern the right from the wrong, you must think through the issues for yourself. Going to indoctrination classes, catechism classes, fundamental belief classes, and being told what somebody else has thought through for you does not help you in this area. We must, this is designed, that all our opinion shall be put to the test, that we may see the necessity of of closely examining the living oracles. Pause. Living oracles. What is implied by that statement? It's an unusual statement. Living oracles. What what is suggested by that? Oracles. What are oracles typically? Sources of truth, enlightenment, right? Right? Living oracles. What is, what is that referring to? The rule. Yeah, is, is, it refer, is it suggestive, perhaps, that God's design is a living law, not a, a code of rules written on stone? That it's design law, how things are constructed. It actually works in real living beings. Keep going. To see whether or not we are in the faith, whether we're in the faith. Is it suggesting that if we don't examine our opinions uh, closely with the living oracles that we're not in the faith? Hmm. From the description of the Laodiceans, it is evident that many were deceived into the estimate of their spiritual condition. They regarded themselves as rich, as possessing all the knowledge and grace that was needed, but yet they lacked the gold of faith and love and the white raiment of Christ's righteousness. What's the gold that they lack? Faith and love, or trust. Trust in God and love in their characters. And the white raiment, what's it symbolic of? The righteousness of Christ. Where? Where is that to be experienced? In in, in, an actual internal process that we become partakers of the divine nature. They were destitute and poverty stricken, walking in sparks of their own kindling and preparing to lie down in sorrow. Why were they destitute? Because they didn't have the gold, which is what? Trust and love, and they didn't have the righteousness of Christ. Well, Think about this. These are Christians, people who proclaim to believe in Christ. What could cause a Christian who, who has lived their life in the church to n- not partake of trust and love and the righteousness of Christ? What would cause them to hold to something that obstructs that? What, what gets in the way of actually par- experiencing that? They, they, they're holding to something else that they have security in. That's, what, that's what's going on here. They have a sense that they are secure in something other than that. What, what, what could give them that sense? What could be the counterfeit that they hold to that makes them think they're secure in Christ when they're not? False belief. False belief in, in, in worshiping Satan or, or, or Dagon or some other... No, they're worshiping Christ here, but a false belief of what? I'm going to suggest to you it's because they diagnose wrongly what the sin problem is. That they think the sin problem is a legal problem rather than a condition of being, a condition of hearts and minds that are not in harmony with the Creator. And thus they're not seeking for a heart change, a renewal of the inner man. They're seeking for a legal adjustment. They're seeking for a payment. They're actually seeking for something to be done to God so he won't be mad. It is un- in unmistakable language, our position is presented before us. Apart from Christ, we have no merit, no righteousness. Our sinfulness, our weakness, our human imperfections make it impossible that we should appear before God unless we are clothed in the Christ's spotless righteousness. We are to be found in him, not having our own righteousness, but the righteousness which is through Christ. What does this mean? Design law? Or impose law. Impose law. I hear sermons on this type of stuff all the time. They will quote this. They love this. And what it means is that when you accept Christ, you are legally declared to be righteous, and the robe of Christ's righteousness covers you is so when the Father looks at you, he sees just the perfect righteousness of the Son, even though you're not. You're declared to be so. You just need to believe and have faith That in the courts of heaven, in the judicial proceedings, as your name comes up in the judgment, that you will be declared by the Father to be righteous because when your books are investigated, God is only able to see the perfect life of Jesus standing in your place. But that would be a lie. (laughs) Whoa! I was actually in a group of theologians having a discussion about this, and I said, just what you said, so God's lying. If he's declaring me to be righteous when I'm not, then that's not true, is it? And they got real upset at that. God doesn't lie. No, no. It's because of Jesus. Jesus is blind. It's all legal. It's all legal. It's not a lie. It's legal. Under design law, and you put the quotes, if if we just read more widely through the sources, Christ's Object Lessons 311. The robe of righteousness woven in the lube of heaven has not one thread of human devising. We accept Christ as our Savior. Our thoughts are brought into unity with his thoughts. Our desire is unified with his desire. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed in the robe of his righteousness. It's an actual transformation of the inner person. Circumcision of the heart by the spirit. Remove the heart of stone. Put in the heart of righteousness. Write the law on the heart and mind. The Father, when he sees us, sees the righteousness of Christ because it's reproduced in us. That's why. That's the the design model. But there's hope for everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If the love of God is not appreciated and does not become an abiding principle in the hard heart to soften and subdue the soul, we are utterly lost. Wait, pause right here. What's happening? If the... Love of God is not appreciated and does not become an abiding principle in the hard heart to soften and subdue the soul we are to love. Wait a second. If the blood payment is not made to pay for our sin debt in the courts of heaven, that's not what's said here, is it? This is describing actual transformation in the heart of the person, that we get new hearts and right spirits. We're reborn. Keep going. The Lord has no reserve power with which to influence man he can give no greater manifestation of his love than that which he has given. Heaven's richest gift has been freely offered for your acceptance. Pause. How do you hear that? Heaven's richest gift has been freely offered for your acceptance. Do you hear it as the richest gift was paid to God to get God to accept you? Or do you hear it as the richest gift was given to get you to accept the truth about God? Which way do you hear it? Well, just the next sentence, I pause because most people will read that and they will see, see, it took a great payment, a rich gift for God to accept us, but that's not what's actually being said. Next sentence, I'll read it, the two sentences together. Heaven's richest gift has been freely offered for your acceptance. If the exhibition of the love of Jesus does not melt and subdue your heart, by what means can you be reached? Whose acceptance? Your acceptance. Will you accept God? Will you accept he loves you this much? Will you accept that all heaven was poured out for your redemption? Will you accept that he is not your enemy? Will you accept that he has given everything to heal and save you? That God is for you. Who can be against you? Who did not save his, son, uh, save his son but gave him up? How we not also with him give us all things? Who is it that condemn? Christ Jesus? He is at the Father's right hand and is also. In addition to? In addition to Who? in addition to the Father interceding for us. This is what is being said. Open your hearts and receive Christ, the best gift of heaven. It's a great quote. in the notes. Tuesday's lesson, top section, dark section, says, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of men. Though this was the Lord speaking to ancient Israel, what message is here for the church today? What do you hear? What is it the Lord wants from us? What is it he wants? He wants transformation of heart in his people. What were the people doing, though, that he spoke these words? And he spoke these words in the Old Testament times, and Christ quoted these words to the Jews in his day. He applied in both places. What about for us today? What were they doing? They were being religious. They were saying the right words, attending the right ceremonies, observing the right day, eating the right food, paying the right tithes, speaking the right words, but they were, what were they not doing? They were not partaking of Jesus. They were not being transformed in heart to love other people. How much of Christianity is stuck in the same process today? again, the root problem, as I see it, is a false diagnosis. You know, in medicine, if your diagnosis is wrong, your treatment is usually wrong. Most of Christianity diagnoses the problem that we are in legal trouble with the ruling authority. And therefore, we need a legal solution to deal with the consequences of the imperial, uh, the ecclesiastical, uh, the imperial system, the punishment that must be. It's not the problem. It's never been the problem. God's design for life has been violated. We are out of harmony with that design. We don't live as God constructed life. We are alienated from the source of life and he is trying to restore and heal and put us back in harmony with him and eternal life. Matthew 15, 1 through 20 focuses on uh, on ritual and how the Jews thought ritual actually mattered. They actually thought it mattered what one ate and how one washed their hands before they ate. They actually thought that mattered. Do we struggle with issues like this today in the church? Do we ever feel that we have sinned if we've eaten the wrong food? Understand, food cannot change character. But food can undermine the ability to form a healthy character. How? Because unhealthy diet can undermine health. And the sicker we are, the more self-focused we become. If you don't believe me, just give you a simple example. Walk across the. You're walking across your living room, and your 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 foot stubs the toe on the on the chair. You ever had that happen? In that moment, where does all your attention go? It immediately goes to your toe, doesn't it? I mean, at that moment, if you were on your way to get a glass of water for your spouse, is that derailed? Is your capacity for other-centered concern impaired at that moment? You see, the sicker we are, the harder it is to live lives of love. It's not impossible. People who have sickness can still do it, but it makes it harder. Because we have real physical needs that need to be tended to, and we often become the source of other people's care for us rather than being able to care and give for others. It it makes it harder. Additionally, unhealthy lifestyle, unhealthy diet, can impact the brain to make it harder for you to remember, harder for you to learn. Harder for you to assimilate those bits of truth to reshape the thinking processes and to expel the distortions that might have been there for a long time. So while food directly does not form character, a do how the lifestyle can impact the development of character. <coughs> does this mean that every morsel of food has moral value? Every morsel has moral value. Right or wrong in every morsel that you eat? No, it does not. Absolutely does not. It's the general trend of your life. Bottom pink section, that says, we all hate hypocrisy in others. It is always easy to see hypocrisy in others, too. How can we make sure that our ability to see hypocrisy in others isn't just a manifestation of it in ourselves? Good question. What ideas tend to increase hypocrisy? And I thought about this this week. You can find certain underlying principles that increase hypocrisy and certain underlying ideas and concepts that decrease it. And I'm going to tell you my, my view, and you can add to this, anything that makes us more selfish makes us more hypocritical. Anything that makes us more loving toward others, more selfless, makes us more genuine and less hypocritical. Anything that increases our survival drive, watch out for me, makes us more Hypocritical. Anything that makes us more selfless, willing to, to give for others, makes us less. Rule keeping increases hypocrisy. Principle-based living decreases it. Theology is the focus on rules, laws, imposed laws, and fight, incite fear, and thus increase hypocrisy. Theology is the focus on design law, love, God's character and methods, enhance love, diminish fear, and lead to genuine living. Thoughts about that? Anybody, anybody comment on that? That's why we see hypocrisy. You'll notice whenever you look at hypocrisy, they say one thing but do something else. Why would they do that? Why?
1: I look
0: good. Yeah, because, they're, because in some way they haven't entered into design law living, reality based living. They, really, that's, that's what, you, what it comes down to. All right, I want to get to this in Wednesday's lesson before we close today. So the lesson, and notice how fast we're moving this week, guys. Mm-hmm. We're really going to try to get the whole lot. The lesson is about the story found in Matthew fifteen twenty-one to 28 of the woman who asked Jesus for help, but he initially rebuffs her, remember? And he even talks about, you know, food given to dogs and so forth. And if, with that idea in mind, read, uh, we'll read the paragraphs three through five here. And it says, what if you tried this approach? Someone asks you if they can have uh, some of your chips and you respond, it is not right to toss my chips to the dogs. Not exactly a way to win friends, is it? However, there are a few things to consider. First, it is true that at at this time, the Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs, bringing the image of many mangy dogs running in the street. But Jesus uses a more affectionate Greek term, small dog or puppy dog here, conjuring up domestic dogs kept in the home and fed from the table. Second, the Canaanite woman calls Jesus the son of David. This shows her familiarity with Jesus' Jewishness. Like a good teacher, Jesus dialogues with her and perhaps tests her. Uh, Craig Keener writes, Perhaps he is requiring her to understand his true mission and identity, lest she treat him as one of the many wandering magicians to whom Gentiles sometimes appealed for exorcisms. Yet, he is surely summoning her to recognize Israel's priority in the divine plan, a recognition that for her will include an admission of her dependent status. So what do you think first about Jesus' comments to her? Food, isn't, food for the children isn't to be given to the puppies. What do you think? Do you read that and go, that, that, that just warms my heart? <laughs> what do you think? See, what do you not get in the, in, when you read Scripture? It's always important to remember when you're reading Scripture. You don't get the tone. You don't get the facial expression. You don't hear the compassion in the voice. You don't, you don't see all that. And there's so much communication missing when you just read the words. You know, I, I remember a movie that I watched in which a, uh, it's called My Cousin Vinny, and Vinny was arrested for a murder he didn't commit. And while they're accusing him of murdering, he says, you murdered those boys? And Vinny goes, I murdered those boys? And yes, you murdered those boys. And, um, and in, in the trial, when, they, uh, when the sheriff who questioned him was on the stand, they said, "What were his, when you t- accused him of murdering those boys, what were his exact words? And he opens his little thing and he reads, his exact words were, I murdered those boys. <laughs> And those were his exact words, but is something missing now? Yeah, to. the, the tone. I murdered those boys. See, that tone is not an admission of guilt. It's an, an, an incredulous statement. How, what? What are you talking about? It's a denial of, of, of it, in fact. And, and this is what you have to keep in mind when you read scripture. Sometimes the tone is gone, and it might change the meaning completely. What tone do you read in when you read those words? Do you think Jesus might have been doing something we sometimes do? Stating, because remember the apostles are here watching. Is he stating something in a way that is like almost a third party stating? Don't you know it's commonly taught that that you know we're not you know and he's stating this, and his tone is such that he doesn't really personally believe it, but but he wants he, he's trying to draw a contrast for the disciples to see? We're not supposed to get, don't you know it's commonly taught that, that food on the table is not supposed to go to poppies? <laughs> You see, that tone isn't very cruel, but a tone like, we don't give children's food to dogs. She caught
2: it. You can tell
0: her. Yes. And I think the tone was clearly an invitation for further dialogue, and it wasn't this condemning tone that maybe is read into it by people who already have this kind of judicial view of God. Okay, what about this idea in the lesson that Jesus was placing Israel in a priority status in the plan of salvation. This is what is being suggested by our in the lesson. D- did Israel have a priority status in the plan of salvation?
2: They thought they did.
0: Yes. Yeah. But this, this author is actually suggesting they did.
2: But the disciples thought
0: they did. Yes, they do. Really? How so?
2: They gave it to Abraham.
0: What did he give to Abraham? Priority status in salvation? A mission to spread the gospel. Priority status in salvation or priority status in sharing the, 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 the plan of salvation?
2: Jesus said, he said, go to the Jews
0: first, mm-hmm.
2: then to the Samaritans. And he followed that practice himself in his ministry.
0: All righty. So let's look at Isaiah 19, 18 through 25. This is Isaiah 19, 18 through 25. It says, in, the day, in that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. One of them will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and he will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And in that day, they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship, the sac- worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord, and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Now you've got to think, this was to the Israelites, and Egypt, is where, where the, the slave masters, the, the, pagans, the pagan, and remember how Egypt is referred to in Revelation. Egypt is not the, the guy, and Assyria is the one that was constantly taking them into captivity their enemy. But notice, on that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day Israel will be, will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth the Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. What do you think about that? What we said earlier, Abraham was to be a a father of many nations. Many nations. You know, there's this idea of exclusion, and it's rife it's deeply embedded in Christian thought. Why do you think America has such strong position in supporting Israel in the world? Is it simply because they're the only democracy over there and gives us political um, and, uh, and um, you know, national security, which, which is a reasonable na- national reason? Why is it evangelical Christians are so supportive of Israel? They
2: really believe Christ is going to come set up his kingdom.
0: Rule from there. They actually still think there's a distinction between being genetic descendant of Abraham and not being a genetic descendant. That somehow you have an advantage if you have genes from Abraham. And I think it's a, an, an opening to be exploited by a deceiver. Yeah. The SD Bible commentary on the passage that I just read out of Isaiah says, The Israelites had come to look at themselves as being the Lord's people exclusively. They forgot that he was the God of all the earth and that he desired all nations to be saved. Isaiah here points out to the people of Israel their opportunities and responsibilities. The time was to come when heathen Assyria as well as Egypt would know God. Thus they had the privilege of being the the family through whom Messiah would come and they had the privilege of preparing to receive the Messiah and be his helpers to teach the truth, to be the priests, to be the educators, to go out and be lights to the world. That's a great privilege. But it wasn't an exclusive salvation for them only. So in the sense that what you were saying, I think, is is right on. They they had a priority in the sense of being privileged to be his helpers first. But they did such a good job that when he came, that they recognized him immediately and worshipped him? No. That they had such a distortion of their understanding of God and his character and all the symbols and all the metaphors... That they actually hated him and they killed him. And what Christianity is in the same boat today. We have, we have accepted so many distortions of the ideas of what these things mean through an imperial construct of law that we're ready to, to, to worship a being who is a dictator rather than a self-sacrificial God revealed through Jesus, our designer, our creator, our sustainer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are exactly like Jesus revealed. That when, when our first parents Deviated from your design, infected themselves with fear, selfishness, sinfulness, that you didn't abandon us, but you committed yourself to come to take up our iniquities and to overcome, to restore your righteousness in this species, to heal and to, and to restore, to reconcile this world back to you again. We ask that your spirit will come and spirit of truth and take the truth, the flesh, and allow us to understand it rightly that we may assimilate it into our minds and be one completely to trust and you will then take the, the life of Christ so it's no longer I that live but Christ lives in me that we may become partakers of the divine nature and then be effective witnesses for you to be your agents at this time in earth's history to tell a message that will lighten the world that you might come again. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.